Hi, I'm Audrey Bellis. And I'm Yvette Montoya. And you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon and Español. We tell stories about femme leaders and activists of color, making our world a better place. Let's get started. So Yvette, we are here today with Monica Fernandez. And for those of our Worthy Women listeners, you probably remember that we had Monica as a panel for a Worthy Women event. And it was, what was that event? How to grow a tribe, build a cult following? No. How to find your tribe. Find your tribe. That's yeah. right. Because it's about tribes. Yeah. Tribal. Tribal <laughs> things. Cult followings. Groups. Find your people. People finding. Yes. My sister, <laughs> my sister, when she found out that we had her was like, why are you low key cool? And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, cause you've got Monica Fernandez from lightning in a bottle. And I was like, oh yeah, lib. She goes, <laughs> you are so stupid, Audrey. You are so dumb and you know nothing in life. And I go, I don't even know what lib is, but she does, you know, this thing called the do lab. And my sister goes, you are so lame. You are so lame. You have no idea. You're low key cool and you don't even know it. And I'm going to go and I want to meet her. And obviously that picked her, not you, because you don't know enough in life. Yeah. I was super excited about it too. Cause I love, uh, I've never been to lightning in a bottle. I think it's, it always looks really fun. My festival of choice was always Coachella, but I didn't know that do lab and Lightning in a Bottle were the same, by the same people. And that was always my favorite thing. If you go to Coachella, if you've been to Coachella and you enjoy the Do Lab, which is that little thing in the middle with all the interaction and they always have their own DJs and they squirt you with water, that's Do Lab and it's awesome. And so with my sister's fangirl moment, which she totally made me introduce her to Monica and she really did fangirl. Now we fangirl. Yeah. Big time. And Sarah goes, she followed me on Instagram. Oh yeah. I remember she told me <laughs> she that too. Was, she was like, oh my God. <laughs> she was so excited. I've never seen her that excited. And except for the time she met Shrinkle at the uh, beauty makeup festival thing. Yeah. Con, whatever. Beauty con. Anyways, Monica, anyway. <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Thank you for we're here us. to fangirl over you too. <laughs> I'm here to fangirl all over you too. Oh. oh. So, Monica, for our listeners, please tell us a little bit about what the Do Lab is and what Lightning in a Bottle is. Sure thing. Uh, well, the Do Lab is a event production company that focuses on experience as an art form. So, what that means is it's a bunch of wild, crazy, creative people that get together and dream up what would be the most fun thing that could ever happen in your life, and we put it at a festival. Nice. <laughs> um, we we create large-scale art installations that service stages at events all over the world, including Coachella. And Coachella is a little unique because we actually book the programming on it as well and throw a party the whole weekend. We we also produce our own events. Our flagship festival is Lightning in a Bottle, and uh, it's about 13 years in the making, something wow. like that. Yeah. That event was started by the company founders, the Fleming Brothers, and was actually like a 100-person uh, birthday party for themselves. There's two twins, Josh and Jesse, and... It was their birthday party in July every year, uh, and they just got a group of friends together. And then in 2004, they decided to, you know, create an actual event that sold tickets. And, and I literally am thinking Drake's turn my birthday into a lifestyle <laughs> right about now. <laughs> yes, they did. Totally. <laughs> he doesn't even know. No, he doesn't. Sorry, Drizzy, you missed the boat on that one. That Continue. Was 13 please. years in the making. <laughs> so in 2000. Six was the or five, six was our first year as uh, a three day event, you know, uh, and from there it's just really grown and expanded, and we're set to do our 2017 edition uh, in Central California at Lake San Antonio, and it's grown a lot in size. You know, we're about twenty five thirty thousand people, wow. like in person people, because we've talked to people that are growing quote unquote communities, and they have like thousands, tens of thousands of online people. But let me tell you, there is a major difference when you're curating online versus in person and getting somebody to actually come out, experience and participate with you. Yeah. How do you guys funnel your offline community 
into like an online community and vice versa? Well, I think, gosh, these days I think everybody's online, you know, um, so is the question, how do how do we make that transition? Like, how do we bring our online community into the festival space? And how do we interact with them and gather with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, again, it goes back to our commitment to experience, you know, providing what we hope and what we consider is, you know, the most fun, immersive, enriching experience that these guests of ours can can enjoy at our event. I'm just picturing like Willy Wonka in my dreams, but in person. It's kind of like that. And like fun and <laughs> colorful and vibrant and all the things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which soundtrack. Is, yeah. <laughs> Always lots of music going on in all places. Yeah, I, I definitely, you know, we, as we've grown throughout the years, so has our look and our brand, obviously, and, and the design of the structures that you see at the event and the color palettes that are used and we're currently in an experience of lots of color, lots of pops, bright, cheery, upbeat visuals, you know, which is interesting because the original look of the Dew Lab or of Lightning in a Bottle was much more earth tones. We used a lot of like browns and sage greens and we worked with bamboo. And so uh, it's nice to see that that transition over the years, that evolution, you know, into this like bright spectrum of color, because I think it's really fun and it's really, you know, uplifting and, and it looks really good. So how did you find yourself doing Doolab and building these events and these immersive experiences? Like, were you an artist? Like, were you a dancer? Like, how did that even, how did that come about? Yeah. In 2004, I met one of the brothers, Jesse Fleming, and became friends with him. And was currently, I was actually a full-time accountant at a small Whoa, business. What? Did not see that coming. <laughs> but I was also a dancer at night. Well, not that kind of dancer, but like. <laughs> accountant by day, dancer by night. <laughs> yeah. So I was, you know, I have a dance background. Throw some out. <laughs> I, I have nice. a dance background and used to be a touring performer and obviously Grew up a bit, got myself this jobby job, but then was still doing ran- like different kinds of performances at night at like cafes or theaters or whatever. Anyway, so um, yeah, I met Jesse Fleming, invited me over to this event. That was in 2004. That was the first year that the brothers and a few other people that were working on the event said, yeah, we're going to actually charge money on this one and charge for parking. And, you know, it was a one night event. And yeah, I enjoyed myself so much. I stayed the next day and helped clean up. And I think I picked up trash. You know, I just needed yeah. something to do. And that seemed to be the thing that everybody could do and, and needed the most help. So, and and just kept myself involved and kept growing with the business. You know, the community and the brothers became very close friends of mine. And we were all sort of living this crazy dream together. So... Mm-hmm. We ended up getting a warehouse in downtown together, and Aww. at that I time, know. it didn't have any bedrooms. It didn't have a kitchen. Really, all it had was toilets, you know. Necessary. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> very, very necessary. Bare essentials. Yeah. That's over there on Bay Street, uh, and we built it out and started working from there, living from there, hosting community events there, and uh, I think I've done just about every job in this company. From, you know, picking up trash to coordinating the volunteers to doing the accounting, doing the human resources, being the production manager, sometimes all those things at once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we know that life. Like, this is reminding I'm having so many feels right now because I'm like, this is me and Yvette. This is us. I mean, we've grown a little bit and we've grown up a little bit more and we have things like insurance now dental insurance vision insurance that was a big deal for us and we, mm-hmm. we just got that and like I'm so moved because it really does remind us of us in the beginning where I'm like Yvette we have to do this and we just have to figure it out and we're still all hands on deck all the time the both of us and yeah. it's uh it's really awesome to see other people that also have those experiences I think because we experience others that are a little more entitled that are like I'm not willing to do that like you're not willing to pick up trash oh here's my favorite we just had this recently with somebody who was not willing to do check-in. And I was like, then you don't need to be a part of our team. 
Yeah. You can't do check-in. We all do check-in. Who has not done it? Like, nothing is beneath you. Yeah, she was above check-in. I was like, I do check-in. Audrey does check-in. Kendra does check-in. Anybody we can get to do it will do it. And it's not like, you know, we do when you do all of the jobs, none of the jobs are lesser or lower. Like, you realize the importance of every single position and how it contributes to everything as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really how I grew my chops as a producer because, well, not only was I also working in commercial film production, but during the time that we were growing the business, having touched every single part of what happens, you gain experience and knowledge and... And and of how they work together. Of how they why work they're together. You see the big picture. Yeah. And honestly, when you get more responsibility, at least for me... I'm always like, man, I wish I could just do check-in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? We're doing a lot. Live that simple life, the check-in life. I just I want one thing like. to be in charge of. Yeah. <laughs> Not five million things. Yeah, give me check-in. I'll do your check-in. Okay? I know. I'll ask me to your next event. I'm on it. Poor okay, event. I'm always you. throwing extra things at her. I'm like, I got another one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, can you stop adding to this? I'm always saying that. But. Well, and uh, I, you know, I got to say, I think it's awesome that that kind of culture is it's what's working here because there there is no lesser or higher or lower or it's all an important part. And keeping that company culture of, of participation and all hands on deck and, and just really willingness to work as a team, it, that's how – I mean, that's how we grew. The yeah. owners of the company, the three Fleming brothers, are out at Coachella right now physically building the structure. With yes, nice. the whole crew. So that's yeah, we never going to change, you know? Yep. We, we do chairs, chairs. We do setup. We, we all touch food. Eventbrite. Like, we're on everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm not allowed to touch speakers anymore. I don't pick them because <laughs> according to my sister and everyone else, I don't pick the good ones. <laughs> I think that's the only thing that ex- is exclusively me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that's is exclusively The only Yvette. thing. Mm-hmm. She has a special skill for it. I do sales and strategy. That does that. There's a... We all have crossover, but we each also have one specific area, Kendra, to social, um, where everybody has their one thing that they really, really right. excel at, mm-hmm. and then the crossover. Yeah. And then the content creation is yeah. fun and the questions. One of the other interesting things about us is that we are an all-female team. We don't have a single man on our team, and my entire career has been nothing but working with men, and I've never been surrounded by more estrogen in my life. I know. Plus, we do women's events, so guess what? It's a lot of estrogen. Our periods are definitely synced up. Yes. <laughs> As discussed all day today. And it's I when I got out of the tech, well, I guess I'm still kind of in tech, but like when I got out of the company I was at, I was like, I am never working with men again. And I meant it, and I'm doing it. And I know that you work with men. Is your team mostly made up of men and women? Because you're in a very male-dominated industry. So what has that been like for you as a woman, as a woman of color, as a creative person, as a leader? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I think I've had pretty much every kind of experience with that possible, um, be it positive or challenging. Um, The the Do Lab headquarters staff is easily 80% women. Um, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I did not anticipate that. Me neither. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And and uh, now when you go out to the field or you go out to the work site, that's where we see that scale tar- start to tip the other direction, uh, where we see a lot more men in the construction roles and things like that and, and not as many females. Um, that said, we have like an incredible team of really strong uh, women that work out in the field and and they're they're welders they put fences up you know yes. they pound stakes into the ground that is the best I think that the reason you see that imbalance when we're out there in the field is that you got to go all the way back to like social programming and like the patriarchy right yeah it is uncommon for women to learn these skills or to go to to welding school or to go to, you know, chop saw school, although it's carpentry school, you know. So it's not that there aren't good women to do it. It's that they're not given 
the direction earlier on in life, you know? Yeah. Didn't you just post about this on uh, Brown Girls Rising Instagram, Yvette, about one of the shops that uh, women yeah. and they're teaching other women to be mechanics? And I like that because I grew up in the garage with my dad. He didn't have boys. And so my, I have coveralls still. And my dad actually has an extra welding mask. Mm. Not that I do that with him, but he want, <laughs> he has a vision that one day we're going to say, yes, dad, and do that with him. My, my grandpa taught me how to hammer things, how to build things, how to put things together. Mm. And like, I'm good with my hands. Like I'm good at building things and making things and She's drawing. And, too. Yeah, she no, goes I'm to CrossFit. Strong. I don't do CrossFit anymore. She's still <laughs> strong. I'm weak. I'm strong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I myself uh, worked for many years on the build teams. You know, I can I can handle this screw gun. Not as good as I used to. It's more, you know, you got to keep on that bike yeah. in order to keep your skills sharp. But yeah, uh, so, so that's the, you know, male to female ratio. And then so what is it like to work in a male-dominated industry? It's been incredible at some points because I've learned so much from the men around me and mm -hmm. um, skills that that I wasn't shown early on in life that I've been able to learn from them and their different and uh, their different fields. And then, you know, there was a time when I was, quote unquote, rising in the ranks and I felt that I needed to pull back my femininity in order to have a seat at the table, you mm. know. So I started wearing all black. I always wear heels, you know, in order to be tall, you mm. know. Um, You're already pretty tall. I know. Right. Yeah, are they well, like giants over there or what? Definitely not. <laughs> but but uh, I just felt like that would, you know, help me. I can relate. Be I heard, wear heels, you know? but I'm real short. Um, and then when I look back at those those sort of decisions, I don't. I have mixed feelings about that, you know, because I also shared that with the team of women that I was leading. You know, I I would give them mm. all these tips on how to get heard. And I don't know how I feel about that anymore because yeah. is it the right approach? Is it, you know? Should we have to do that? Should we have to do that? Yeah. Uh, are we, are we like, uh, how do you say, um, feeding into it? Yeah. You know? We struggle with those questions on the daily. Maybe yeah. me more than Yvette. Yvette's pretty grounded in her yes and no statements. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah. I... Similar to you, when I'm out in sales, when I'm dealing with partnerships and corporate clients, um, I work with men. And I'm in a dress constantly. I mean, today is a rare exception. But for the most part, when I'm working, I'm known for being in a dress and heels. And it's rare that I'm not. And um, and I've been on meetings with people. In fact, I've, I've told this story before. In a meeting with somebody high profile, I asked if he would make an introduction to somebody else that he had mentioned. He said, absolutely. And when I do, I want you to wear that dress, those heels, and those lashes. Because let me assure you, he likes to look. And I was like... Audrey has, like, thousands of just, like, appalling stories like that where wow. I'm just like, dear sweet God. And she's always like, well, that's what you have to do. You got to play the game. You got to be out there. That's like, just, like, life. And that's what you deal with. And I'm just always Sometimes like... Sometimes that's true. Especially and I'm always in the work like, that don't we do. let them objectify you. <laughs> yeah, and see, that's where I was coming from in my – I dress very modest. I've always encouraged the women on my teams to dress modest. Well, not always. I, in the past, always yeah. encouraged the women on my teams to dress modest because I didn't want to feel like I needed to be pretty or attractive in order to be heard. You know, right. obviously, I wasn't, like, looking unattractive on I'm purpose. Because like, you're but, a very attractive woman. But yeah. I wanted to, like, pull the femininity back. So in, right. it's like you can't win. Yeah. You know, if you play up the woman, then you're taking advantage of it. If you play it down, then you're feeding into the system and, you know. Like changing uh, yourself to fit. Yeah. To kind of fit in. Yeah. It's a complex it is. thing. It's hard. Yeah. It's an, And there's – I don't know that there's a right answer for that. There really just isn't. You just kind of toggle it's, with what you feel comfortable with. Yeah. You yeah. got to be yourself. And that's going to change, right? Mm -hmm. Your comfort level is going to adjust. And as it adjusts, it just – you need to be okay with whatever it is is right for you at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And just be yourself. You know, I I think that the root of my decision to start dressing and, and acting more masculine is at the root that I'm, I can be. Like, I can – I really play into that masculine part of myself. So especially as a leader, I'm, like, very strong and very confident. And yeah. so – it just turns out I like to wear black too. 
<laughs> which is okay. But um, I wore color for you ladies today. Oh, thank yeah. you. Uh, and you were telling us offline that you've even – you were just talking to somebody about the reverse situation, right? What it's like to be uh, in all right. women's industry. Right. Well, I think the comment was made is like isn't – Every industry, a male-dominated industry. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Because I say it to every single guest. I'm like, what's it like to be in a male-dominated industry? And it doesn't matter what industry it is. It's just kind of like a blanket statement that pretty much – music. Yeah, food, music, production, like events, business, Mm -hmm. like maybe not teaching and nursing and uh, what else? Well, (laughs) I was just having a conversation with um, a good, good homie of mine and he said modeling. You know, because he's oh. a male model. Male model. And um, what about male models? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and he was expressing some of his experiences in a female dominated industry. You know, and it wasn't in the context of of me working in a male dominated industry. He was just sharing, I think, a specific frustration that happened at work and mm-hmm. how he sees this happen other places and and now that I'm sharing this with you, actually, I have a friend who's a high-profile makeup artist, and he's also shared the same thing. Oh, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. What is it? Lo- like, actually losing jobs, because- to, not because of skill, but because of gender. Oh. Yeah. That's true. That just popped popped up there. I wonder if I male ha- hairstylists feel that, too. I think it's much more acceptable to be a male hairstylist. Not acceptable because it's all acceptable. There is no not. But I think um, I think we see – I mean, look at Paul Mitchell. Hello. That's true. Right? But then we we think perfect. of big male hair brands. But I feel like in even in the fem- – maybe not in modeling, but I feel like in female fields or spaces, like particularly I see this with – in the culinary arts where – like cooking is like a female thing. Like that has always kind of been our charge, like, you know, with. Well, particularly in Latina culture. Yeah. yeah. And cu- culturally, keeping just food, like. Keeping families together. It's right. the core center. But the most successful chefs are always men. I don't know if that's true. I think it comes down to notoriety and access. Um, so the women who founded Border Grill, good friends, they've sponsored events for us before. Two female chefs um, started their own business because they weren't allowed to cook in in the kitchens in Chicago. Yeah, um, but that's they very... were prep chefs. Not they couldn't be line cooks. They couldn't be sous chefs, and uh, they went out, started their own thing, and they have blown up. And they have a strong commitment to supporting women businesses. They've supported us very generously on many events. But being a chef is very. It's also very male dominated. My sister went to culinary school, and she wanted to be a chef. And they were like, "Yeah, you're gonna, you know, get out of Le Cordon Bleu, and you're gonna be a chef." And she was just like a prep chef for the longest and like she wasn't moving up and she was working crazy hours and she wasn't making a lot of money. And like the people at the top and the people who were moving up were always the men, mm. interestingly enough. And I've also heard stories about how the top chefs get to be top chefs because they don't stop once they have children. And it's very demanding working in a, in a kitchen, like in a big That can be said kitchen. for any generation though, right? Um Pausing to have children re-emerging into the work career can absolutely be a challenge for many women. And I have friends that didn't take time off. They worked up until their due dates and went back to work immediately. Some have regrets and some don't. Um, I think those are very personal choices. But I know I have a very strong friend of mine who went back, worked the entire time she was off, barely worked from home, never breastfed because she couldn't. Excuse me, not that she couldn't, but it was a big deal for her to not get too attached because she needed to go back to work and didn't want to be pumping at work. And her career was very important to her, and she's the primary breadwinner in her family. She makes much more money than her husband does, and she very much justifies it as, well, this is how we afford our lifestyle, and this is what the sacrifice is, Mm. and end of story. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very interesting thing to see, right? Especially for us, I think, as entrepreneurs, that we are afforded the luxury. Actually, we're not afforded any luxuries. We work really damn hard to make them, but we work really hard to afford ourselves the luxury of flexibility when we need it, not because we're not working other long hours, but for things in that capacity, whereas many other women have no choice. Yeah. Right? Some careers are like, you know, do or die. If you don't come back right away after work, you know, and even the fact I didn't know this. I just learned this. When you go on maternity leave, you actually go on state disability. 
that's what pays for your maternity leave. Did you know that? It's like a having disability. a child is a disability. It's a disability. And if you want to continue it, you you take your sick days. You take your sick days, <laughs> or you get somebody to tell you that you've got postpartum depression, which for yeah. many people might actually be true. Yeah, I know somebody right now. She, I don't think she's going to go back to work, but she just had a baby, and she only gets like two months maternity leave. Like I can't even imagine have like the trauma of your vagina after having a baby and then being like, okay, bye. Like two months later, like you're healing your body. You need to be with your baby and like all this other stuff. Like hormones are not right. Yeah. Yeah. Bonding and, and it, it, it's unnatural for a mother and a child to be apart so early on. Yeah. Yeah. And the breastfeeding that, that story that just makes me sad. Right. You know, um, and she didn't even want to try. She didn't even try from the beginning. Yeah. She had made up her mind from the very beginning that she was not going to breastfeed yeah. because she wasn't going to be tied to an experience that would be difficult for her at work or uncomfortable for her peers as she yeah. framed it to me. And I was like, that's a very natural thing. Why is it uncomfortable? I don't get it. Well, I never I, – I don't understand this whole normalized breastfeeding thing and not because of the reasons that other people don't understand it. Breastfeeding was always normal. Yes. So yeah. when I I was really late to that party, <laughs> but when I looked around and I started noticing that there was this big fight to normalize or this big movement to normalize breastfeeding, I was like, "Hasn't it always we need been this? this? Way? Hasn't yeah. it always been this way?" Okay. You know, I was raised around a lot of aunts and and you know um, women and in, in my Mexican family that always had kids. There's always babies around, and there's always nursing babies around, and it was just really normal. Yeah. yeah. I want to take that statement you just said. We really need this. Like, this is a fight that we need. I don't think in today's world I would have pictured today being uh, a time or place where we would have to turn to each other and say, really? We have to defend our constitutional rights? Really? Reproductive rights. Reproductive rights. Breastfeeding, like. Healthcare. We're now mm, other. Uh, We're, the racism. Pay, equal pay. Yeah. Who would have thought? And here we are under. In this Trump era, under Trump Nation, experiencing these things on a daily basis. In fact, this is why we started the podcast. So after the women's marches, we said, oh, people are taking big action. We're inspired for the big action. People want to know what's next. They want to know how they can get involved, what to do, how they can get involved. And really what they want to see is engagement and modeling of this behavior from people who look like them, who share their cultural experiences, and who are doing their part, so how can they do theirs, right? And we talk a lot about how there's white girl feminism and there's black girl magic. Well, what happens to everybody in between? Latinas, Afro-Latinas, Southeast Asian, everything, right? Yeah. I mean, and we've also kind of been exploring that feminism really fall, falls on a spectrum. So where do you see yourself on the feminism spectrum? Yeah, that was a question I was thinking about the whole way over here. Uh, <laughs> we don't try to make it easy. <laughs> Actually, yes, we do, except for that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you know what I did? On the way here, I looked up the definition of a feminism, and I read it like 10 times. And yes, I'm absolutely a feminist. As I read the definition, the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of the sexes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Currently, the energy around the word feminism on both sides yeah. makes me not want to touch it. Yeah. Because it feels that both sides of that energy have a perspective of this word that is so skewed. Right. You know, that it it makes no sense to me. Yeah. So I can identify with this definition right here. Yes, absolutely, to its core. But then the sensationalized word feminism on both sides, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around. Yeah. You know, I believe that women are people. I believe in human rights. Therefore, I am a feminist. Yeah. That's when you're a peopleist. Yeah. yeah. You're here for the people. <laughs> that's something that's been happening with kind of feminism becoming a buzzword. And kind of being embraced by like corporations and being used as a marketing tool and being used as so like is diversity and inclusion a sensational type we, of thing. The fact that we actually have to do and we do this 
diversity and inclusion training for how we can be tolerant of other people and genders and multicultural groups and express each other with tolerance and understanding is sad. That's because of microaggressions. Oh, Yvette with the microaggressions. No, it's you with the microaggressions, but that's actually what is addressing microaggressions is when you are going into this type of quote unquote sensitivity training to address the ways in which you subtly or accidentally or you maybe not so accidentally are, you know, saying and doing things that are oppressive or offensive to certain groups. Yes. Like, uh, what did we hear from, from, uh, uh, what's her name on Facebook? Don't say her name. Uh, she was like, I don't think that there are black feminists. I don't understand. Do I have black feminist friends out there? I only see white feminists. Are there even black feminists? And I'm like, what? Who said that? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we had to pause there. Same person who said, I'm not racist. I have a black boyfriend. Oh, God. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. I I just wanted to help her when she said that. I was like, please don't ever say that again. Please stop talking now. We can fix this. We can explain this to you. But yeah, it makes me sad to think that we have to do that. And I'd like to think that there is some beauty in this that we could find of like we're exploring things about each other that maybe we didn't recognize or didn't know, right? And that it could be an expansive experience versus like it's sad that we even have to have these conversations because they're not normal. It definitely is. But I looked – I was doing a lot of reading after the election because I was like, how did this happen? What did I miss? Like, why wasn't I, why didn't I know that this was coming? Like, why is this such a shock to me? And I was reading and only, wait, 75% of Americans do not have a college degree. Okay. So 75% of Americans don't have a college degree. College opens a lot of doors and it educates you in ways that like we can't even fathom because we're not from these like middle America places where they don't have other people that look like them. Then there's like the bubbles of Facebook and other social media outlets where, you know, a lot of white people don't have any friends that are of color, period. So yeah. they don't get educated on these things. And like, I get it. But then there's also the negation of the things that we feel and the things that we experience on a daily basis. And that's where like I struggle with like wanting to educate people and then with like wanting to be like, oh, well, I see where you're coming from and I should be empathetic and blah, blah, blah. Compassionate. Compassionate. I struggle. I struggle with compassion. I struggle with it. (laughs) I I hear what you're saying. I definitely hear what you're saying. But I think there's also um, for us, I think when you have experiences of otherness, it's hard to understand when people don't. And you're like, how can you not see this? I mean, we've all had our experiences of otherness. Like I get that sometimes I get it from both sides. And I know this is a privilege to be able to say that, but I hate when people are like, oh, you're Latina? Audrey Bells is such a white name. You look so white. Actually, you have big eyebrows. You could be Persian. Are you you Persian? Is that better under Trump Nation right now? Is making me Iranian better under Trump Nation? No, it is not. Right? Which is totally like shaming and being told you're not Latina enough all the time. And then, you know, I get the flip side of it where it's like, oh, you're different. You're one palatable. Of, you're one of those. You're one of those. Or when people say really disparaging things, you know, to me that are racially disparaging or comments where I sit here and I'm like, do you not realize? Hello, right here. You are offending me. Let me just let me just whip this out and school you right now because I can. Monica, have you had experiences of otherness? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think my whole life on both sides as well. My mother uh, was Sicilian and my father Mexican. So – I was I was born in Los Angeles and then moved to the suburb of Simi Valley when I was in oh. you know in yeah. grade school. And Simi Valley has its own struggles with tolerance and diversity and mm-hmm. and so my group of friends, you know, I, I I was an athlete in high school and a dancer and most of my friends were were white and not the most tolerant. I was accepted because I was half white, but I do remember my very first boyfriend, like real boyfriend, right, in high school. You know, we were in a sweet moment, and I remember, this will always stick out to me, he 
took his finger and he like touched my nose and like wiggled it. And he's like, look at your cute little N-word nose. <gasps> I, oh. Scouts on her. I w- and at the I didn't even pause. Wait, I, did he I, say I, N-word or did he say the actual word? The actual word. Oh no. Look at your cute little boop boop nose. <gasps> and at the time, it didn't even offend me. I was just glad I was being accepted. That is like how deep that goes. Yeah, That is a very real experience. Uh, Very different. But what you just described, that sentiment of not even being offended until later realizing that many of our guests have had. Yeah. Yeah. I had that one when I went to – I was in seventh grade and we were going to the movies. And I remember I was being introduced to somebody who I didn't know by – I still remember his name, Ryan Burke. And he <laughs> and he <laughs> introduced me to his friend, and he was like, "This is Yvette. She's Mexican, but she's cool." And uh. I remember number one, I'm half Mexican. Number two, I remember being like, "Oh my god, I'm one of the cool ones." And then later like, on, I was god. like, "Oh my god!" Mm-hmm. Like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, thank God they accepted me. Yeah, because that's yeah. what all you all you want to do is just be like, "I don't want to stick out," and like you just physically do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I was old enough to leave CME, I sure did as fast as I could and and made it a point to surround myself by diverse people, you know, mm-hmm. a diverse group of people. And and I have successfully created an insulated bubble for myself in life. So while I can reflect on racism as it applied to me and my parents, my parents were both very racist, you know, my, my mm-hmm. Mexican father – and my white mother, and they were both racist against different races, you know? Oh, um, yeah. So, I was just at a family event this weekend, and for sure we saw some of that where we were like, yeah. yeah. So whether it was coming in at me or coming out from my family, there was like a certain amount of deprogramming I had to do from my parents' own what I considered to be benign racism. And I say benign meaning yeah. they wouldn't act on it. It wouldn't, yeah. you know, it's just. It's not malintention. They're just attitudes that are kind of like axiomatic. You just accept them in their reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I remember one time my grand, oh my God, my grandparents, um, he was watching. He had dementia. He, yeah, he had dementia. And he, but these things were inside of him already. <laughs> like he, he, This was pre-dementia, I'm pretty sure. And like he was watching TV. Oh no, it was it was dementia already. But he was watching TV and it was Kim Kardashian and, and uh, Brandy Bush. What's his name? Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush. It was Kim Kardashian and Reggie Bush. And he oh, goes, no. yeah. <laughs> I know where this is going. And he was like, pero es negro. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, yeah, that's her, her boyfriend. And he was like, in Spanish, he was like, but they'll have black children. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, but nobody wants that. I was like, Grandpa, no. My like, cousin just married stop. a black guy. They have four kids together, the black skin kids in the family. And that was a big deal when that happened. That was like my mom. It was a big deal when my mom married my dad because he was the first white guy in the family. And that was big. The black guy was bigger. Yeah. That well, was majorly polarizing. The white guy is usually like positive. A little bit more, I feel like. Mejorando la raza, that's us. It's a little bit positive. It's a little bit more accepted. And I feel like people are like, oh, you know, like you're moving up in the world. He was was white and Jewish. You're not even Catholic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that's definitely the instruction I was given was to not uh, seek out that kind of partnership. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And... My mother's side of the family, who were Italian, I want to say this. I love my I love my grandmother. May she rest in peace. I I think that she was tolerant, but I didn't always feel the most tolerant from tolerance from the uh, other parts of that family. You know, I definitely felt outcasted as a child a bit because our father was Mexican. Yeah, we got that. Um, I remember going to Hanukkah one year at my dad's side of the family um, with my dad's aunt and uncle and um, somebody referred to my mom as a wetback and we never went back again. Yeah. We never went back again. And I didn't know that until we were much older as to why that happened. But same thing, that was the first time on either side of the family somebody had gone different. And when you're Jewish and you marry someone who is not Jewish and you're not raising kids that way, it is a big deal. Oh yeah, yeah. that is a big deal. And we were, and we were always the mixed kids 
And you know what's funny? We were always told by both sides of the family, oh, thank God you look like us. <laughs> and I'm like, so thank God I look Jewish, and thank God I look Italian, and thank God I look Mexican, and thank God I go to church. Yeah. And it's funny because you're like, no, wait, we don't look like either side of you. We just look in the middle. Yeah. Well, and so that's like the other side of the question, have you felt otherness? I also have felt uh, a great amount of pride from the, yeah. you know, both cultures, specifically the the Hispanic culture, and have met a lot of people that are very interested in Hispanic culture. So the yeah. other side of that otherness isn't negative. It's it's right. getting to share your pride. Okay, in- so tell us about the pride. Oh, yeah. What does it mean to you to be a brown girl? And do you call yourself a brown girl? Because this is brown girls rising. <laughs> yeah, how do you own it? Yeah, I definitely call myself a brown skin lady. Uh, how do I own it? I mean, go Dodgers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> In my Dodgers hat right here, because thank God baseball has Los returned. Doyers. It yeah. is the most glorious season of life. I mean, what it means to me is is having an immense pride in your family and and food and getting together and having good times and helping each other out. I think that a lot of my sk- my adult skills of support and compassion came from being raised in a Hispanic family that you know you you get together, you you call your cousins, you you ask how they're doing, you bring <sighs> food to the party. You know what I mean? It's we just like of- Are your cousins local? Yeah, I have over over 400 cousins. Oh my I- god, <laughs> and I thought mine was big. My great grandma and grandpa had thirteen adult children, and they all had large families. So, wow. yeah, I produced our family reunion in in two thousand twelve, and it was uh, it's crazy. That you have to produce crazy. it. <laughs> we took over the whole. Yeah. We had a lot. We had like departments and teams. That's funny. That is the best. Yeah, I have a big family, but they're not in the U.S. So, oh. like, I never get that experience, and I'm always jealous of people who have like really big families and like lots of fun stuff. Because I, I mean, ours like, is dramatic. Ours is oh, like I know. if That's the Kardashians <laughs> and my big fat Greek wedding got together, but we're Mexican and dramatic. <laughs> my mom's the youngest of six. Everybody had a lot of kids, so I have like over thirty-five first cousins in a ten-minute radius from awesome. me, who also all have kids. Yeah, right. Because all the cousins range between fifteen and forty-two. And everybody has kids except for two young ones, me and my sister. The entire the entire range of life. So only – well, <laughs> that's not that many actually because 15 to 42, the bulk of them, I'm on the younger spectrum. So we're really – except for just a couple, two small ones, we're 30 to 42. So everybody has a lot of kids in between. And we – I joked about this on another uh, episode. But when one gets pregnant, they all get pregnant together it's like they can smell it in each other and they're like look we're (laughs) pregnant together and I'm just like man by the time I have kids if I ever have them there's gonna be a huge gap they'll be able to babysit for you one of my cousin's (laughs) kids yeah one of my cousin's kids they got pregnant in high school I saw their daughter this weekend at uh my grandma's birthday she's 21 Mm. I was like Oh my gosh, I remember when it was a big deal that your parents got pregnant and you're 20. You can drink (laughs) like an adult and you're going to graduate college this year? Like, when did that happen? Yeah. I haven't even had kids. I'm behind on life. No, I'm not. I'm just fine. Yeah. My my sister and I don't have kids either and and my brother either. And at our family reunion, you know, some some families took up the whole frame of the photo. And then, and then in our photo, it was me and my dad and my sister. Yeah, there you go. Same. We don't. Have, there's no kids on my. I mean, my cousin Michael had one, like young. So his kid is like 16 now, and um, so he doesn't even really count as like a little kid anymore. And he's the only one though. Like it's my cousin Michael, my cousin Jessica, me, and my two sisters that are in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And like none of us have babies. Oh, well, I could lend you some of my cousin's kids. There's a lot of them, <laughs> and Good. there's always a baby. <laughs> they can keep I'm not having big them. On babies. Yeah. All right, but I want to talk about communities. We're talking about big mm. groups. You were talking prior to this about having the privilege of curating your own kind of insulated surroundings, right, for the experience that you want to build. Something very unique and really why I was so excited to have you here is to talk about the community that you've built for yourself, for the Do Lab, for Lightning in a Bottle. It's an in-person experience. Um, our own For Worthy Women mission is about creating safe communities for people to thrive and you literally do that. Talk about diverse and inclusive. Your communities that you create are both of those things. 
and they're for creatives. They have creative elements. They're, they're on a safe big scale. On a big scale. And they're safe environments for people to enjoy, to thrive, to feel accepted. And that is such a rare thing to see and so incredibly powerful. And as somebody who's a leader of those communities, both a byproduct of them, for them, by them, how has it changed how you lead how you um, show up in the world, how you curate these experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, I, thank you for that. And also um, I wanted to share, we we do have a mission and an ethos at DoLab to create diversity. And we'd like to see more of it in the festival culture because festivals in and, in and to themselves are a very white, Amer you know, white, white mm -hmm. privilege thing, right? I was going to say and urban they're outfitters. They're expensive. And particularly what we've been coined transformational festivals. Mm. So we are always looking at ways and opportunities to curate, curate and create more diversity within our own communities so that we don't end up and maybe have been at certain points sort of preaching to the choir, you know, the spiritual open-minded white mm -hmm. young man and woman. Yeah. Right, that's going to go out there and change the world. You know, wanted to give yeah. real experience to that. Uh, how does it change or how does it affect my leadership or how I show up in the world? You know, it just goes back to that feminist question. Like, people are people. So I think the way that I would approach that question or an answer to that question would be, you know, just trying to create an even playing field for everybody, whether it's their actual playing field, like they come in and they play at the festival or creating an even playing field in the work place that really truly looks at people as just people mm. and um not make trying to stay away from judgments based on how someone looks how someone talks how someone dresses or or you know um especially when it relates to women and allowing everyone's talents to shine through i love that yeah that's super beautiful. fuller i love it <laughs> oh. that was that's one of the things that is like i like got really into raving in like 2009 when it started kind of gaining a little bit more popularity. It was before it like jumped off and it is where it is now in the U.S. at least. And it's, you know, after the whole 90s raving situation. <laughs> I was, I <laughs> was there. <laughs> Peace, love, unity, respect. Yep. <laughs> but like that's like what you said is what drawed or drawed, what drew True. people. <laughs> it drawed people what drew people to raving in that whole community. Cause it was like a really tight knit community. I remember. Mm -hmm. And it was totally different than the way it is now. Like people were super chill to each other. Everyone was nice. People would just hug each other. Like everyone mm -hmm. was super cool and nice and chill. And it's like, it doesn't matter who you are. You just come here and everybody just is man. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I would say that festival culture, particularly electronic festival um, electronic music festival culture is based out of the rave days. You yeah. know, I myself grew up in that scene and um, my, the the owners of the festival, the Fleming Brothers and many yeah. of the people that work with us. And That's what you see in it. And I think that's why I was drawn to Doolab too because I, I did my fair share of raving, but the way that people rave now and the whole rave culture has completely changed and shifted and become more about drugs and partying as opposed to the experience of it and the the unity the peace love wait peace love unity peace, love, and unity respect, respect. Yeah. yeah so it's kind of I yeah. got out of it because I was like eh, this isn't it's just a bunch of like bros and squares like trying to be like relevant. well girls went from wearing well here's another thing but Ladies went from wearing kickwear pants and t-shirts just like the guys to yeah. lingerie. Pretty much. Yeah. I'm like, when, when I think did of, that when happen? When I think of that, I just think like hardly any clothes. I think nipple stickers. It just became really over-sexualized yeah. in my opinion for a young lady to go. It just got It went from just like being about the dancing and the friendships to like this crazy over-sexualized like people making out place. on drugs like yeah getting, it's just it, yeah um, it became a totally different thing but you know and then you, you throw burning man in there too and that's that is another big example of uh large community gatherings on a set 
of ethos that is yeah. upheld within that event. And I heard it changed a lot too, though. I mean, it was always better last year, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the whole joke. <laughs> it was better last year. That's so true. Um, of course it changed. It We've changed. Yeah. You know, everything changes. If it doesn't... I think I only know <laughs> burners that have, like, gone and how it's changed their lives and they found the mystic and the dirt and the dust and, yeah. and the state in a yurt and... That was my first. You know. That was my first year at Coachella. I, my first year at Coachella was in 2010. I snuck in. <laughs> I drove up there and I was like, "I'm getting into this. I have to see who was it." It was like MGMT. Beyonce came out for Jay Z, but I missed that day because my boyfriend was working. And when I found out Beyonce had was performing, someone texted me. I was like, "Do you see what you did? <laughs> Do you see what you have <laughs> you done to me?" I was did. so mad at him. I was like, oh "We're gonna gosh. go up there. We're gonna sneak in because that's what we gotta do." But like my first year at Coachella was like everyone's like kind of dirty and like Ew. it's like. Everyone was super cool. Like, I remember sitting down with a bunch of people and making friends. And you'd see people, like, multiple days. you just kind of run into them or you're going to the same like set. Like a conference. Yeah, it was really fun. But it the it kind of started to blow up. And then it's like, you know, now everyone is with their little curated outfits. And everyone always kind of looks the same. And, like, they have VIP now. And they have, like, the after parties. Some people don't even go to the shows. They just kind of buy tickets and then go to the parties. Yeah, it changed. And it's, it's totally probably different. awesome for the person that it's their first year as it was awesome for you in your first year and, and you That's moved all you on, know. you know, yeah. or it moved on. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just different. I'm the first one to be like, man, Bernie Man's not fun anymore because I've been going over 11 years and I just had a young lady at work go and her mind is blown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, can I go to the Burning Man that you went to? <laughs> but I did. It was my first one. That yeah. is a good one. That's true. Because oh. my last Coachella in 2013, I was like, I'm done. Yeah. Well, may we all find experiences that are like your first one, and may they all be mind-blowing in a good way. Yeah, keep trying new things. They do. And Monica, <laughs> you are a fabulous person to follow on social media. I certainly enjoy your content. Where can our audience find you? On Facebook, I'm Monica Fernandez. And on Instagram, I'm Monica Danger Pants. Yeah, Monica Danger Pants. Oh, I the love story that. is not as exciting as the name. <laughs> I say I vote that yes, it is just because of the name. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, I can be found at Audrey Bellis, and you can find me at Yvette. Actually, this has been Brown Girls Rising. Bye. This episode of Brown Girls Rising was brought to you by Nylon Español and recorded at Maker City LA in sunny downtown Los Angeles. We hope it's inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time. 